Are you sick of political discussions that amount to nothing more than people hurling bumper sticker slogans and sound bites at each other? Are you frustrated with people that seem to love their political party more than they love their country? Are you ready for real conversation about practical solutions to real problems? Me too. I'm Jay Stickney, and this is Debate Suck. Welcome to Debate Suck, a weekly podcast about practical solutions to real problems. You know what? This is our first episode. So let me uh, take a moment and talk about why this podcast exists in the first place. Well, here's the problem. What passes for discussion of political and social issues today amounts to nothing more than name-calling and slogan-throwing on Facebook, media panels on CNN or Fox News that frequently have more than one guest, trying to condense complicated issues and ideas into one or two sentence sound bites, all while being talked over by the hosts or by other guests. So what you get is something that fills time but lacks substance. You usually come away without any more information than you had when it started. You certainly don't come away with enough in-depth information to allow you to form or alter your opinion. That's a problem. And that's a problem with the format, and all the programs that keep using it are equally to blame. Then you have debates. Debates suck. Debates are not a pathway to truth. Here's the deal. Someone can win a debate based on their skills and experience as a debater and still be wrong. In fact, skilled debaters, the best ones, can convincingly argue any side of an issue. Furthermore, debates are not a pathway to understanding. Because in a debate, you don't listen to understand the other person's position. You listen to find weaknesses in their argument that you can exploit. It's verbal fencing. Now, I would much rather have a conversation where two people with differing opinions about how to solve a problem discuss the best way to solve a problem. That's what we're trying to do on this show. Create an environment where people can go in-depth on issues and talk about something that's nuanced. Talk about something of substance. Now, if you watch presidential debates, what do you really learn about the candidates? I submit that you don't really learn anything about them. Victory goes to whoever won, can evade or deflect gotcha questions, or throw a snarky comment on top of somebody else's attempts to evade or deflect gotcha questions. And two, who can tell the voters what they want to hear? Debates are a throwback to a time before the information age. Most of us can, with a couple of swipes of our phone, find policy statements and voting records on who whatever candidate we want. These debates have the same problem as media panels. They are shallow by design and people aren't given enough quality information to form or shape reasonable opinion. 
Politics, like most important things in life, are too is too complicated and too nuanced to be reduced to sound bites or bumper stickers. Issues are complicated or else they wouldn't be issues. We would have solved them already. And we need to start devoting more than a couple minutes on a cable show to solving them. Now, before we take a deep dive into this week's topic, let's take a look at some news of the week. Our first topic in our first story in this week in news takes us to Florida, a place that we're probably going to be brought to a lot in this week in news. In this particular case, uh, we have a Florida principal uh, that was a bit of a Holocaust denier. This week, we're taking a look at a Florida principal who lost his position due to his position on teaching the Holocaust. William Latson, uh, the former principal of Spanish River High School in Boca Raton, Florida, uh, ran into a bit of a problem. <laughs> Jesus, that sucked. William Latson, the former principal of Spanish River High School in Boca Raton, Florida, recently lost his position due to due to an email exchange between Latson and a parent of a freshman student back in April of 2018 in which Latson refused to state the factual nature of the Holocaust. The year prior, uh, 2017, uh, there was an incident at a local middle school where there was some anti-Semitic graffiti. Now, the parent of one of the students that attended that school was concerned and wanted to see if the Holocaust was taught appropriately at the high school level something that's required by Florida law. Now, officials with the East... I'm sorry. Officials with the school district... Officials with the school district... Jesus. Officials with the school district of Palm Beach County said William Lawson... Officials with the school district of Palm Beach County said William Latson, formerly principal of Spanish River High School in West Palm Beach, Florida, had been reassigned out of an abundance of concern for students and staff. Governor Ron DeSantis, a Republican, signed a law in May of this year that prohibits discrimination based on religion of based on religion in Florida's public education system. It specifically mentions anti-Semitism and gives an example of the discriminatory and gives an example of this discriminatory behavior, accusing Jews as a people or the state of Israel of inventing or exaggerating the Holocaust. 
So not only did this principal get reassigned, but he was also informed a few days later by the superintendent and by the school board that his contract would not be renewed for the ensuing year. So he was, for all intents and purposes, fired over this. Now, here's the deal. He, it's, it's again, more complicated than we would like to think. It's very easy for us to take this guy and demonize him. And I, I make no claims about this. It's very easy to take this principal, or former principal, this man, and demonize him. But his actions subsequent to the initial problem back in April of 2018 uh, was to, he became an advocate for, for Holocaust survivors and for Holocaust education. And that should count for something. I don't know if it should count for enough to save his job, but it should count for something. You know, I'd love to have this guy on for an interview. I'd love to hear his side of things and how his thoughts on the Holocaust changed and his views of it have changed over the course of of the, the this ensuing time period, this this year uh this year plus. I mean, it's been since April May, June, July. It's been 15 months since this happened. So I'm, I'm really curious is to see how his attitude has changed. And if his attitude hasn't changed, if he was a Holocaust believer at the time of this exchange, I want to know why he felt pressured to say what he said. At Palm Beach uh, School District has a lot uh, it is a very large jewish population so i'm i i'm i'm really curious as to see what sort of external pressures he was facing that that forced him to hold this opinion or made him feel like he was forced to hold this opinion or hold this position it's uh, I I'd I'd really love to talk to him. I'd I'd love to hear what he has to say on that. Our first story news of the week takes us to Florida, a place that we're going to probably visit a lot in news of the week. So in Boca Raton, Florida, uh, there was a at Spanish Rivers High School there was a principal, uh, William Latson, and he lost his position and was recently informed that his contract would not be renewed essentially firing him, because he didn't acknowledge that the Holocaust did, in fact, happen. Now, this all started with an email exchange between Latson and a parent of a freshman student back in April of 2018. The year prior, there was uh, an incident at a local middle school where there was some anti-Semitic graffiti. So the parent, concerned, uh, emailed the principal to see what sort of Holocaust education was in place. He responded uh, in a rather shocking way. Uh, one of the quotes from his email is, uh, quote, Not everyone believes the Holocaust happened, and you have your thoughts, 
but we are a public school and not all of our parents have the same beliefs, so they will react differently. I can't say the Holocaust is a factual historic event because I am not in a position to do so as a school district employee. Now, the school district uh, responded and uh, said that that's not the case at all, that uh, school district employees are not in any way prevented from talking about the Holocaust. They're not certainly not prevented from stating the factual nature of the Holocaust. And officials with the school district, it's, a, it's Palm Beach County, said that Latson uh, had been reassigned out of an abundance of concern for students and staff. And this, uh, this pretty much set off everybody um, from both sides of the aisle, and deservedly so. Uh, Senator Rick Scott tweeted that uh, the fact that someone charged with educating children would be unable to speak unequivocally on the realities and horrors of the Holocaust is incredibly concerning. Our children and communities deserve better. There's no excuse for anti-Semitism in any form. Governor Ron DeSantis, also a Republican, uh, signed a law in May that prohibits discrimination based on religion in Florida's public education system. It specifically mentions anti-Semitism and gives an example of discriminatory behavior, and I quote, accusing Jews as a people or the state of Israel of inventing or exaggerating the Holocaust. And that's pretty specific. Now, since the original incident, the, the email exchange with the parent, Latson, using a Twitter account that, he has, that has since been disactivated, it no longer exists, but he has tweeted in support of Holocaust education and disavowing anti-Semitism following uh, four days of training at the Holocaust Memorial Museum. He retweeted posts about International Holocaust Remembrance Day on January 27th and about the deadly shooting at Pittsburgh's Tree of Life Synagogue back in October, uh, October 27th. On October 29th, Latson tweeted about the senseless Pittsburgh shooting. On February 5th and February 6th, he tweeted about the Holocaust survivors who spoke at the high school and about school members who volunteered at a USHMM dinner. Now, the question I have is this. Okay, was he in the wrong initially? Yes. You don't deny factual information, especially in a position as an educator. However, I want to take a moment and look at what he did afterwards. Should his efforts after the fact matter? Was his flaw unforgivable? Was his error unforgivable? You know, to be honest, I don't even know he was sincere. But if he was, if he actually did change his perspective, if he really is trying to make up for it, shouldn't he be given a chance? If so, what should that chance look like? You know, should he be allowed to teach at the... Uh, or not teach. Should he be allowed to be a principal still? 
Should he be allowed to be employed at that district? Should he have lost his position? Again, anti-Semitism in any form is wrong. I am not in any way at all saying that it isn't. But we also need, I believe, to leave room for redemption. The question is, is after his offense, is he redeemable? Or does his life need to take a different path now? You know, I don't know the answer to that. I'm, I'm really interested in hearing what you as my listeners have to say. You know, if you want to head over to, uh, to Facebook and, uh, and leave a comment, uh, you know, join, the, join the Fans of Debate Suck uh, group on, on Facebook and, and let me know what you think because I'm, I'm really, really curious. Uh, you know, I'll tell you, I would love to interview him. I would love to see, not to give him a platform to uh, air grievances, but I want to know how the process affected him. I want to know how that time since going to the Holocaust Museum uh, affected him personally, and and how uh, how he's grown. Or, or changed as a person since you know because of this experience. Now, the second news story that we're going to talk about is uh, is a bit more positive. Um, the U.S. women's national team won the World Cup. Uh, so, first off, congratulations on what can only be described as a dominant tournament performance. In group play, they had a plus 18 goal differential. That's unheard of. But of course, this isn't without controversy. Megan Rapinoe, co-captain of the team, doesn't sing the national anthem before the game. Uh, A tradition, if you watch the games, you'll see both teams singing their national anthems, along with, you know, it's broadcast over a speaker, so it's not like they're mic'd or anything and singing it, but they sing along. And uh, Megan Rapinoe doesn't, unlike her teammates, which do. So let's take a look at why. All right, since, uh, since she came out in 2012, Rapinoe has been a very vocal advocate of LGBTQ rights. And her protest is to raise awareness that the symbol of our nation does not represent freedom for all of her people equally. And it doesn't. I don't think that that case can really be argued. I don't think that you can argue that people do have equal representation under the law, that that they have equal protection under the law. And until that happens, our nation's a work in progress. And it's okay to be critical. In fact, it's more than okay. It's morally essential to be critical of something that you love to make it better. If you're just critiquing for the sake of critiquing, you're kind of a jerk. But if you're pointing out a critique, if you're pointing out a flaw in something to make it better, then that's good. 
that's constructive criticism. That's what, heck, that's what I want to hear. If you're listening to this podcast, you know, I have a Facebook group. Find the Facebook group. It's uh, Debate Suck. Uh, or fans of the Debate Suck is the name of the group. Join the group and leave your criticism. And if it's constructive criticism, I'll incorporate it and make my show better. But now, Going Deep. This week on Going Deep, we're going to take a look at Megan Rapinoe's protest during the National Anthem and the public's reaction to it. What we have here is uh, a counter-protest. When the U.S. women's team returned to the country, returned to the U.S., they were met by protesters, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with protesting. And I want to be very clear on that. There is nothing wrong with protesting at all. There are certain things that a protest can't be, but those are really specific. In most cases, protests are fine. But we're going to talk about protesting the protest, which is sort of like a classic redirection. It's basically political three-card Monty. See, by protesting the method of a protest, we could ignore the reason for the protest. If we can focus on, or if our attention can be focused on not singing during the National Anthem, or Colin Kaepernick's kneeling during the National Anthem, or somebody not going to the White House, or some team not going to the White House, based on that current administration's policies. These are good protests. But if you're able to cause this redirection, it stops being about the social issues. It stops being about LGBTQ rights or the treatment of minorities. In fact, it's never allowed to be about that. It's not given a chance. Because the reason for the protest becomes secondary to the method of the protest. But here's the deal. If a protest isn't visible, it isn't a very good protest. Protests are supposed to be visible. They're supposed to raise awareness, spark conversation, and cause people to think. If your protest is to sit quietly or maybe post something very heartfelt on Facebook for your friends to see and for other people to crap on, that's not an effective protest. If you as an individual refuse to purchase uh, from a store, say, like Hobby Lobby, based on their policies, or from uh, some people are protesting uh, Jimmy John's or boycotting Jimmy John's because of uh, the hobbies and habits of the owner. Uh, I think uh, big game hunting was uh, was what triggered that. You're not protesting effectively. Two things have to happen for a protest to be effective. 
one, it has to catch people's attention, and two, it has to you, you somehow the the people need to be informed of the reason for the protest, and that has to be understood, or else the protest doesn't matter. So you need those two factors: you need visibility, and you need connection to the issue. And if you can derail one of those, you've rendered the protest ineffective. Now, celebrities, star athletes, uh, musicians, all these, these people that have high visibility, you're not going to eliminate the visibility on that. You're just not. What could happen, though, is you can disconnect the protest from the message. You can disconnect the protest from the reason. And then you can just be critical of the action. Now, this isn't new. In the 1968 Summer Olympics in Mexico City, African-American athletes Tommy Smith and John Carlos, track and field stars who medaled uh, the gold and the bronze respectively, uh, were in the center of a roiling controversy over their raised fist salute, a symbol of black power and the human rights movement at large. And there was huge fallout for this. They were booed in the stadium uh, in Mexico City when they did it. And they returned home to scathing criticism because it wasn't the proper place to protest. Here's the deal on proper protests. And here are the rules. And there aren't a lot of them. One, you are not allowed to cause harm to somebody. That's not a protest. If you cause harm to somebody for political motivate out of political motivation, that's terrorism. Protests are not terrorism. So you're not allowed to hurt anybody. Secondly, you're not allowed to destroy property, either private property or public property. So basically the two rules are you can't hurt anybody and you can't break stuff. As long as those rules are obeyed, protest as visibly as you want. Protest as visibly, protest as, visibly as you are able. Make sure that the message gets conveyed through the protest, or else you're just going to look like a jerk. It doesn't even have to be conveyed. You know what? It doesn't even have to be conveyed through the protest. It can be used to contextualize the protest either before or after the protest too. That's fine. But you have to make that connection with so that the public understands what's going on. Because that's how the conversation starts. But the conversation cannot be allowed to be about the nature of the protest. It has to be about the reason for the protest. And again, all these protesters... 1968, uh, John Carlos and Tommy Smith, Colin Kaepernick, Megan Rapinoe, and there have been others. All of these are met with hostility over the means of protest and to a greater or lesser extent the reason for the protest, the motive for the protest gets lost. 
and that's by design. But this country's founded on protest. Here's a quote from the Declaration of Independence. It's one of my favorite quotes. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing invariably the same object, invinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty, to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Thomas Jefferson, in a letter to Abigail Smith Adams in 1787, wrote, The spirit of resistance to government is so valuable on certain occasions that I wish it to be always kept alive. James Baldwin once said, I love America more than any other country in the world. And exactly for this reason, I insist on the right to criticize her perpetually. Now, what Baldwin was referring to here was a positive criticism, a constructive criticism, a criticism designed or intended to point out flaws so that they can be improved upon, so that the America that we love can be made more perfect, so that the spirit of liberty that she represents, that she is supposed to embody, can be experienced by everybody, by all Americans, equally. It's a criticism designed to improve. It's the difference between somebody saying, hey, you missed a spot on when you were painting this wall. Or when you were cleaning the kitchen table. Oh, by the way, this dish is still dirty. Are you being critical of their performance? Yes. But why are you being critical? You're being critical so that they can do the job properly, so they can do the job completely. And that's the criticism that Baldwin was talking about. So we're going to end this going deep segment with this thought. Is it okay to be critical of America if your criticism is designed to improve it? And, and this is for my, my fans on my, on my Facebook page, if you were, and this is for fans of my Facebook, and this is for members of the Facebook group, Fans of Debate Suck. What criticism would you level against America in an effort to improve her? And is it okay to do so? Secondly, I want to know what you think about this sort of this whole process of protesting the protest i'm really looking forward to some good conversation about this and i hope to see your responses on the page i'm really looking forward to your feedback thank you
Now, normally, at this point in the show, we would respond to listener comments and questions, but since it's our first episode, we don't really have those yet. However, if you want to comment or have a suggestion for a future episode, or just want to talk and say hi, be critical, that's totally welcome, you can do so on Facebook, on our Fans of Debate Suck group, or you can message me on Twitter at Debate Suck, all one word. But we're going to move on to a segment I like to call Way Back in This Week, in which we look at some historical event of significance that happened in the week since the last show. So for today, or for this week, we're taking a look at July 8th, 1776. On this day, the first public reading of the Declaration of Independence happened in Philadelphia. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel John Nixon read it to a crowd, and uh, that was the first public reading of the Declaration. Now, Colonel Nixon was an interesting guy. Uh, He was born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in 1733. His father was a wealthy shipping merchant, and uh, that gave uh, John Nixon a strong background in economics. He was one of the leaders of the Patriot cause in Philadelphia, and while serving the Continental Army, he reinforced Washington at Trenton and participated in the Battle of Princeton. He reinforced Washington at Trenton and participated in the Battle of Princeton. In 1778, he spent the winter at Valley Forge. Now, when a bank to provision the army was formed in 1780, he became its first director. And he was also one of the founders of the Bank of North America, which was established in 1783. And he was also its president from 1792 until his death on December 31st, 1808. So he was a pretty long-lived guy, too, and uh, used both his military skills and his civilian skills to ensure that our nation existed. And so, thank you, Colonel John Nixon. I have some thank yous and shout outs before we end the show. Uh, first off, I'd like to thank everyone that has liked my Facebook page or joined the show's Facebook group, Fans of Debate Suck. Your early support really helped me keep motivated while I was sorting through the best way to do a podcast, something that is very clearly a work in progress. A special thanks goes out to Phil Vecchione, aka DNA Phil, from the Misdirected Mark. <clears throat> a special thanks goes out to Phil Vecchione, a.k.a. DNA Phil, from the Misdirected Mark podcast, for his advice on setting up the podcast, and for his continual modeling of organization and preparedness. Thanks, brother, I owe you a debt. I... I hope you enjoyed this first episode of Debate Suck. If you liked it, tell your friends, and I'll be next...
I hope you enjoyed this first episode of Debate Suck. If you liked it, tell your friends. And I'll be back next week with another episode. This is Jay, signing off. Thank you.